0: Welcome to Power Politics, the Mishpacha podcast exploring the flashpoints of American and global current affairs and how they impact the Jewish community. I'm Benjamin Rose, Mishpacha's editor at large.
1: And I'm Mori Litwack, a two-decade veteran of political campaigns at Capitol Hill.
0: Join us weekly as we delve into these critical topics and more on power politics. On today's episode, we'll talk about The Lies My Congressman Told Me, The Bizarre Story of George Santos. We'll also hear from Stu Lozer, a
1: veteran of democratic politics and the longest-serving chief spokesperson for the city of
0: New York. And will Kevin McCarthy get the votes he needs to become the House Speaker? You are listening to Power Politics, Unpacking the Power Plays Shaping Our World, a Mishpacha production. So, the lies my congressman told me, the bizarre story of George Santos. We're going to start today's program with that. Who is George Santos? George Santos is a Republican who flipped a seat from blue to red from New York's 3rd District, which serves parts of Long Island and Queens. He lied about his college experience. He lied about his work experience. He lied about his religion. He intimated he was Jewish when he's really Catholic. And uh, he calls it all a poor choice of words and says that uh, everyone embellishes the resume, so what did I do wrong? Maury, the question that I have is, did anyone vet this guy before he ran?
1: It's funny. I think there are a couple reporters who looked into it pretty extensively, but it just wasn't paid attention to. It's also funny when you talk about embellishing resume, I was thinking to my own resumes years and years, it's been a while since I did a resume, but when I say I was competent at Excel, was I really competent at Excel? That's one thing, Vinyamin. but this is just a panoply of lies and just stretching the truth beyond that we've seen, I think, in a very long
0: time, Vinyamin. Is there any chance this guy can survive or uh, is he finished?
1: Well, I, it's funny, by the way, because I was looking through some of the historical analysis and some of the historical examples of this. And you know very well that politicians and candidates have a history of embellishing. So, for example, the state senator Julia Salazar in New York, she had a very public uh, example of this where she was claiming she was from one place and turned out she was from another place. There's been candidates in New Jersey and Texas and other places that have gotten in trouble for embellishing their resume. President Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ, really, uh, let's say, plussed up his military experience, which was not significant but was turned into something much more significant and, and was well-documented. So there is a history of this. But to this extent, I, I don't know, Benjamin. I think this is really a almost unprecedented with both right and left saying, we don't know who this individual is.
0: He did an interview on Fox News, and uh, Tulsi Gabbard uh, was really pinning him to the wall. She was basically uh, trying to uh, get him to admit that he really ruined himself. And one of the things he said is, well, Joe Biden did the same thing. And she stopped him uh, right in his tracks. She wouldn't let him get away with that. Biden did have some issues with uh, his resume and also with alleged plagiarism as well. But he's the president of the United States. So on that basis, why can't this guy stay in Congress?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think this is just look at our community saying that you're Jewish and then saying you're Jew dash ish. There's terms for this jumping the shark. It's ridiculous. So I-, I think that this is a nice tactic to sort of say everyone does this. But this is really unprecedented in terms of just the list of untruths that are piling up here. Benjamin. You know, I, I don't know if I- I've never seen anything. Sort of this extensive. So I think he's going to have a hard time um, with the electorate and a hard time in general from a credibility perspective if this is how he's starting.
0: And I know the Republican Jewish Coalition also came out with a press release. They uh, expressed their disappointment over him as far as our community is concerned. So that's an important voice to uh, weigh in. One of the uh, theories advanced for why he's still uh, there and uh, why he hasn't been bounced is uh, that Kevin McCarthy needs his vote. Kevin McCarthy is running for House Speaker, That vote is coming up on the first day of uh, the new session, the new uh, 118th Congress, which starts on Tuesday. And uh, McCarthy is lacking, according to uh, most people, about five votes in order to be elected House Speaker. And he's counting on Santos to be uh, one of them. Is that a factor? I
1: don't know. I tend to not believe that this close margin for McCarthy is as serious as it is. I tend to believe this is something that is... uh, more beltway spin, more a talking point, an interesting thing. You don't really have situations like this. Uh, Historically speaking, there aren't a ton of examples like this. There are some, which I I know you know, Benjamin, but I tend to think he's going to get elected speaker. And a lot of this is just noise. So I have a hard time believing that that's the case when it comes to either a candidate like Santos or in general. So I think this is probably going to blow over. He's going to be elected speaker. I just don't see it.
0: I would agree that uh, he should be elected speaker. He should have been more of a shoe in but the Republicans didn't get the majority that they thought they would in the midterms. But there's no serious opposition. If there was another good name out there that could challenge McCarthy, then I'd say, you know something? We have a contest, but we don't. It's no contest. He's been priming himself for this for years now, and uh, his time has come.
1: Yeah. I do think, though, that, Binyamin, it is important for the listener to understand that There are razor thin margins. There are examples where this can be extremely close. There are examples where a Democrat peels off and becomes a Republican, a Republican peels off and becomes a Democrat. So there are those situations, but you see those happening more in the Senate than you do in the House where the margins are just much closer. I think what's motivating this is that it it is very close between the Republican majority and the, the Democratic majority, which is allowing a situation which you see mainly in states and other places where there's very thin margins between the two. Uh, major parties that a few elected officials can say, well, I'm not going to vote or I am I want X, Y, or Z, or whatever it is. So you're seeing that. But typically, once sort of someone's elected speaker, I don't know if you're going to see more of this or people sort of... It's going to change. Once he's in that driver's seat of being speaker, it's an extremely powerful position. He has the power to appoint the committee chairs. He has the power to set the floor rules, and he's in charge of all those things. He helps decide what goes on the floor, if not wholly he decides that. So this is going to be in the rearview mirror, could be as soon as this podcast airs, Binyamin. I mean, I think this is something that is important to talk about, but I would be very surprised if this goes on much longer.
0: Well, one thing we know for sure is Nancy Pelosi won't be the House Speaker. So,
1: Yeah, we saw some good bipartisan behavior, though, because we saw John Boehner come back and honor uh, Speaker Pelosi. So we, we have hopes that politics can be bipartisan once you've the power from it and they're no, no longer Boehner's Speaker
0: or Pelosi's Speaker, everybody's friends. Hopefully that's a good sign. And uh, speaking about uh, historically, the most contentious speaker election in House history happened in 1855, when slavery and a rising anti-immigrant mood, uh, sounds familiar, poisoned a uh, deteriorating political climate. More than 22 candidates vied for the post that year, and it took two months and 133 ballots for Nathaniel Banks of Massachusetts to win the race for House Speaker by a final vote of 103 to 100. My thanks to the House historian for this historical tidbit, and here's hoping that uh, this Congress will make a much quicker and uh, less contentious election.
1: See, you know, the the listeners have to be friends like Benjamin, with the House historian. If you're not friends with the House historian, you don't know the House historian. These are the key contexts you need if you're a veteran journalist like Benjamin Rose.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Maury. Talking about Congress is always interesting, but really most people are interested at this point in the presidential election in 2024. Who's going to run? Who's going to win? It's a little bit too early to tell, but we already know that Donald Trump has thrown his hat in the ring for 2024, but we're still waiting to hear on Joe Biden. We don't know what's going to happen yet. And uh, we have a special guest today that uh, has some insights that he's going to share about uh, Biden and whether he is going to run again. And if not, who might end up running instead of him?
1: It's my privilege to introduce uh, my friend and uh, a longtime colleague, Stu Lozer, who's run research departments on mayoral, gubernatorial, House, Senate and presidential campaigns. He's done it all. He served as communications director for Senator Chuck Schumer, who's now the majority leader. He was a chief spokesperson, the longest chief spokesperson for the city of New York, for majority of Mike Bloomberg's time as mayor of New York City. For the last 10 years, he has run a communication firm serving tech and high net worth clients in New York and DC. I consider him one of the smartest political uh, individuals I know, both in the communication space, in the democratic politics, and in overall uh, thinking. He's a great person for us to uh, ask some of these questions that are on the minds of a lot of listeners. But before we do so, people love to hear why. The story of why. Why did you go into this, stew? Why are you involved in politics? What drove you to be a, a spokesperson? The person who sits at the podium, first and foremost, answers those questions, deals with the New York Times and the Washington Post and all the other places. What drove you to do this, Stu? What's your story? You know, when you
2: look at other people's lives, you see your brain puts the pieces together like frames of a movie, and it all makes sense. And you say, that person really has it going on. And you know that in your life, it was all random. I worked my way up to a really good job in the Gore campaign. Al Gore, Joe Lieberman ran for president in 2000. You know, in campaigns, you either win or lose. There's not a third case, except in that case, arguably, if not for 500 votes that were miscast or people thought they were voting for the other person in Florida, we would have won. Oh, well, didn't get the job in the White House because we didn't win the presidential. Came to New York, said I'd get out of politics, called the one person I knew in New York politics, And two days later, had a job on a mayoral campaign running. Mark Green, a Democrat who was running, got the nomination, lost against Mike Bloomberg. Again, series of like, every couple of years thought I'd get out, was recruited to Chuck Schumer's office, Senator Chuck Schumer's office, to help him run for his first re-election to Senate. Uh, Then Mike Bloomberg hired me to help his re-election. Then I went to City Hall. As it happens, I spent another 10 years in politics and have a really interesting and great progression from starting as an intern at Bill Clinton's AmeriCorps National Service Program to uh, being the chief spokesperson for the largest city in the country. But it was all random. And if at any point I had really applied myself and gotten a good job out of politics, it wouldn't have happened. So,
1: it's There you go. The story, for those who are listening, you want to go into politics, the, the haphazard nature of it. Although I think that someone like you who's been doing it for a while had somewhat of a plan. So we appreciate you telling a story. Can you get right into it for us, Stu? You look at national politics, you've run and been involved in a presidential campaign and obviously in major campaigns as well. Can you give us some insight into the president? Is the president running for reelection? Yes, no. What does it mean? Just give our listeners some insight into this uh, from your perspective. Sure.
2: At the time of this recording, it's Wednesday morning. Last night, the president arrived for a week's vacation in the U.S. Virgin Islands with Mrs. Biden. Uh, he has said that he is going to run. But he's going to talk about it with his wife and his family over the holidays. Everyone I've spoken to, spoken to senior people in the White House in the last couple of weeks. I've spoken to a lot of the smartest and most skeptical reporters who cover this White House, who got their starts in New York politics, covering mayors, covering Chuck Schumer, covering Mike Bloomberg. So we know each other well. I've spoken to them in the last few weeks. They say he's running. They say he absolutely is running and he feels that there isn't anyone else in the country who could run. I have to take them at their word because they do this all the time. I find it extraordinary. By Joe Biden's definition, he has been the most successful president of almost any of our lifetime. He obviously has his detractors, but from reshaping uh, American manufacturing, bringing chips back, manufacturing back to the United States, down through all, through climate change, through massive works for Democrats. He has been the most successful, certainly Democratic president and most successful, arguably most successful president of our life. He has the opportunity to be like Jerry Seinfeld, go out on top while people are still cheering. He came in, was a transition guy, served for four years. He says he's still running. The people around him say he's still running. The people who cover him say he's still running. But the factor that, that we have unknown is what conversations he has with Dr. Biden, his wife and others this week maybe he will come back and say he's not going to
0: So the accomplishments that you cited, Stu, is that enough to uh, win him enough votes from uh, independents and Republicans to win him a second term? Or are these not the issues that people care about so much? Every campaign is about the future and campaigns are tough. You don't
2: get enough credit when you're running for the work that you've done, particularly if, if you believe, like as I do, that Joe Biden has been an incredibly effective president. Everyone who's running for office tells you they're incredibly effective. The whole system is set up in a way that allows for double talk. Because we have two houses of Congress, which is, of course, the right system under the Constitution and the best evolution of democracy in the world, arguably. I know people favor a parliamentary system like Israel, but, you know, you could argue that our system is also fantastic. But it allows members of Congress to say, I passed a bill that didn't YZ. But what they really mean is I passed it in the House, it didn't even go to the Senate. I passed it in the State Assembly, it didn't even go to the other House of the Legislature. Social politics is built on this non-delivery. You get to take credit for things you didn't even do that didn't even happen. You get to say happened because you got it as far as you could go and then it didn't happen. You don't get enough credit for the work you do. And people are always asking what's next and what's more. Is it enough to win him election? It depends who we run against.
0: Okay, so that's my next question. Uh, Who is he afraid of? Is he afraid of Donald Trump? Is he afraid of Ron DeSantis?
2: You know, I don't know if he's afraid of Ron DeSantis. He should be afraid of Ron DeSantis, because Ron DeSantis is an extraordinarily effective, smart, and thorough politician. I'm not saying this as as a fan. I'm saying this as an admirer of his skill. Donald Trump's superpower, the thing that made him so good, is to get us all talking about Donald Trump almost all the time, to take away all the oxygen from someone else. And if we hadn't been in this weird situation in which we had a global pandemic and political communications was sort of off-kilter for a year, not clear that Joe Biden would have beat him. Ron DeSantis can do that. Ron DeSantis is doing a fantastic job of Being out ahead on social issues that his base cares about, being out ahead on things like going after vaccine manufacturers, he is running to Donald Trump's right, and he could win, and he's an extraordinarily skilled politician, is extraordinarily, thoroughly careful and smart, and he absolutely could give Joe Biden a run for his money. If this is a redo of Donald Trump four years later, more tired, more than a little crazier uh, versus Joe Biden...
0: I think Joe Biden should be very confident. With other people, I don't know. As a senior campaign manager in the past and strategist, if Ron DeSantis came to you and said, Stu, when should I step in? When should I announce my run? What would you tell him? I'm not here to give advice to Ron DeSantis.
2: I would argue the problem with announcing too early and becoming too big usually is that you can't sustain the momentum. You can't sustain the focus. Arguably, Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris, when she ran for president two years ago, announced early and out big, became a front runner, And that allowed people to attack her and get attention and and sort of take her down and really look at, well, what did she do as a San Francisco district attorney? What did she do as attorney general of the state of California? Is that in sync? Generally speaking, a longer time that you're the front runner means more time for you to be pulled down to earth. So that's a conventional wisdom. Is Ron DeSantis the thing? I don't know. Does Ron DeSantis fall victim to conventional wisdom? I don't know. I think I would tell him run sooner rather than later. Eventually, the Republican campaign is going to be about you anyway. Get out early before Mike Pence gets his footings, maybe before he announces, before two or three others announce, uh, before Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, someone that I'd worked with pretty effectively on on a lot of issues important to the uh, Orthodox community, before they get out and take their oxygen and take their limelight. So I would to tell them to get out sooner.
0: How about Biden's uh, misstatements and missteps? How is that going to affect his reelection campaign? It's a
2: good question. I think that the people who care about it the most and amplify it the most are people who are never going to vote for him. A lot of people in our community, people who prefer to get their news from conservative news outlets, they're not gettable voters. The path to 270 electoral college votes, the path to winning any election is the people who are with you no matter what, and a small segment of people who you can swing. You know, for the last 10 years, 15 years, there's been sort of been a theory among campaign people that that's not how you win elections, that it's simply about getting more of your people to love you. But the reality of certainly the last election cycle is that there are people who move back and forth the last couple of election cycles. That's why Trump lost because he lost people. That's why the Democrats won this year because they won over people. The people who by and large swing back and forth by and large recognize that no one person is perfect. Joe Biden is good and honest and authentic and imperfect just as they are imperfect. Uh, And the misstatements don't land the same way among people who are actually considering whether or not to support him as they do with people who who are inclined to hate him regardless. Importantly, like, I want you say, like, everything I said about Ron DeSantis being extraordinarily effective, extraordinarily savvy, and extraordinarily good strategist appeals to some of these people. Maybe he is to their right. Maybe... At first blush, they say suing vaccine manufacturers or investigating man- vaccine manufacturers. That's a little far feel from where I am. But like maybe Joe Biden evokes some concerns. Ron DeSantis has some concerns. There is the 10 to 15 percent of the voters who swing back and forth who matter, who wouldn't necessarily reject Joe Biden because of what you say, but might be able to like someone else.
1: I have only one question for you um, in terms of this. So, Stu, you're not Jew ish. You're Jew ish. I'm going to keep making that joke as long as I can. Mm -hmm. You're a member of the From Community also. You know, sometimes the presidential politics becomes like a spectator sport in our community. Is there a role for people uh, to play in the presidential campaign if they want to volunteer in their local communities? I think it's hard for those of us who live in New York and New Jersey because it just isn't there. But maybe we're missing something. Maybe it will be more competitive in the primaries. How do you think about that for the community or for a lot of the listeners here? How could they be thinking about the presidential campaign this early?
2: Great question. Thanks for asking. This upcoming presidential campaign, at least on the Democratic side, is going to be different than any since the mid-70s because Iowa is no longer an early state. So the issues of a fairly conservative, but also with pools of extremely liberal, Midwestern, white, agriculture-oriented people uh, has been reduced. New Hampshire remains an early primary state, not a state with a, long, a large Jewish community. Nevada has been elevated as an early primary state, an extraordinarily fast-growing, large, and in many ways, diverse Jewish community uh, that significantly votes Republican, but many of them may still be registered Democrats or may be able to register Democrats in time for the presidential primaries two years from now. I'm sorry, one year from now. That's one point. Um, Michigan, another state with a huge Jewish community where there's been good organizing you know, so far, is going to be an early Democratic primary state. So campaigns are fought on ideas, but won by numbers. Campaigns are about words, but the numbers that added up, as I said before, not the last presidential campaign, but the second to last presidential campaign I worked on, which was uh, Al Gore's campaign, like it came down to numbers, math and votes uh, that were cast in Palm Beach County, Florida. That's what the presidential race came down to. There are places where Jews at a presidential level can matter a lot. Every out-of-town community that is not in New York, uh, New Jersey, Florida has a real ability to move a presidential election in a state, Pennsylvania, we saw recently um, within the core of New York, you know, New Jersey, Florida areas, you know, Jews matter a great deal on non-presidential races because we have the ability to disproportionately perform. We have the ability to come out and vote more than others do. Um, we have the ability to adapt to early voting and other uh, developments that, that make it easier to vote. But this is a presidential year Since 1976, since Jimmy Carter ran in 1976, when the Iowa caucuses and sort of put Iowa on the map, the first two states have been Iowa and New Hampshire for both parties, states that have almost no Jewish population, certainly no from Jewish population. And now for the first time, at least one of the parties has Nevada and Michigan as early primary states, places where we actually can organize and make a real difference, where a few hundred votes could decide the trajectory of a presidential race.
0: We've been speaking with Stu Lozer, who has run research departments on mayoral, gubernatorial, House, Senate, and presidential campaigns. Stu, we thank you for joining us today and for sharing your insights and your experience with us. Very valuable. Thank you, Stu. Thank you for having me. Maury, my uh, my one takeaway from uh, Stu's interview, we are all part of this echo chamber. Let's face it, probably 80 to 90% of, let's say, Orthodox Jews in America are probably conservative and vote Republican. And like Stu said, we tend to look at Biden's fumbles and his stumbles and exaggerate them. And Stu pointed out, I think, some important information about some of the accomplishments that Biden's made in terms of returning chip manufacturing to the U.S., in terms of climate change. These are issues that matter to millions of voters in America. And uh, that, to me, was a very refreshing viewpoint to hear.
1: I think the takeaway for me is when he breaks down the ability for the communities to influence presidential elections in places like Michigan and Nevada and other areas, and he talks about Pennsylvania. I think we have such a short-term memory, not just for, and he mentioned it also for the local politics in New York and New Jersey. I think we have a short-term memory of the strength of our voice. And just hearing him break it down almost as a science, I really think that for me, that's just a powerful takeaway to remember that. Because I just I think people think it's all happenstance, or it just sort of happens, or the deck is stacked for the candidate you like, against the candidate you don't like. I don't know. I think again and again, when you hear people who are in this and understand it, uh, there's an art and science to this that people can be part of.
0: Getting out to vote is important and making an impact is uh, super important for our community, especially uh, in areas where we're under siege right now. We've been speaking mostly about uh, the living politicians and uh, people like President Biden, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, who's going to uh, run actually in 2024, but we're ending 2022. And uh, we lost a lot of uh, big names this year. One of them who I know that you had a relationship with was Senator Orrin Hatch. Maybe you can tell me about uh, Hatch and his relationship with you and uh, what we lost in the, the gentleman of that stature.
1: Well, I wrote in Mishpacha recently about how, as a from person who was interested in politics, it's almost impossible to find a position because it's such a breakneck speed. And there is almost a requirement and expectation you work seven days a week, except if you work for Mormon elected officials. And I was able to find a Mormon elected official on the House. And I was part of the, I believe, I, I, I think I know that I was the only firm staff member at the time, who, uh, first one to ever work for Mormon members of Congress. And so I worked for a Utah congressman. And so we used to have a delegation of the then three congressmen and one senator two senators, one of which was Orrin Hatch. He treated everybody basically the same. So wherever you were, I was a lowly staff member climbing the ranks and he treated me the same as he would treat a member of the Senate or a member of Congress. I remember I was sitting at the side of the room and he told me I got to sit with everybody else. So he was just a really kind person. And if he found out you were Jewish, he used to show that he had a mezuzah that he had around his neck that Saman gave him. So he would show that to you and was just so proud of that. And his connection to the community, he viewed himself as someone, you know, you really could get his attention if he thought that he could help not just Americans, but if he thought he could help the faith-based Americans. And if he found out even more, he could help the Jewish community and do that as well. I mean, he just really was such a champion in our community on religious liberty issues. Obviously, he was extremely pro-Israel, just a great human being, a great individual, and really uh, one of a kind.
0: Worth mentioning is uh, that Orrin Hatch was a senator from Utah for 42 years. That's a lot of uh, winning election battles. So uh, not only was he a good person, but uh, he also knew how to win. He knew how to play uh, good politics. The person who left us this year that struck me the most is uh, the former Prime Minister of Japan, uh, Shinzo Abe, who was assassinated. And why did that strike me so much? Because, uh, firstly, he was trying to come back. He was trying to make a comeback like a lot of people, like uh, Netanyahu has. But Japan is not a country known for gun violence. And to me, it was the most shocking thing that in Japan, a political candidate, especially someone who had once served in the nation's highest office and was popular, could get gunned down uh, at a campaign appearance like he did. That really stunned me. And I think the other person worth mentioning who we lost this year was uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. Gorbachev, of course, was uh, Secretary General of the Communist Party, and he was the one who uh, presided over uh, breaking up the Communist Party. Uh, Many of us uh, remember the terms like lasnost and perestroika. So Mikhail Gorbachev was the one who basically led the Soviet Union out of the uh, communist era and presided over its breakup. Uh, One might argue now that uh, under Vladimir Putin they've taken several steps backward, and uh, that's certainly a valid point. But there's certainly no disputing the uh, impact that Gorbachev made on the Soviet Union and Europe and in the entire world
1: decades decades i mean you talk about these three all decades as you mentioned just decades of involvement and and influence in their respective countries
0: most politicians have a tremendous amount of influence and every week on this program we're going to mention a person of influence or an influencer who uh, we should keep our eyes on and my pick this week has been yamin netanyahu Uh, netanyahu uh, successfully sworn a new government and he also made a big comeback because people gave him up for lost. Uh, there were uh, many, many commentators, uh, myself included from time to time, who said, you know, maybe it's time for him to take a step back. He's, he's been in the job for too long, and uh, we need someone else from the Likud to uh, take over and to lead. Netanyahu bided his time, and he finally, after five elections, won a significant majority, and he's aligned with the uh, other uh, political parties that a lot of people uh, outside of uh, Israel might not be too happy with, but definitely reflects the will and uh, the views of the Israeli people. And I give him a lot of credit for that, for hanging in there. And we're going to be hearing a lot more from him, obviously, because uh, he's a major player in world affairs. He always has been. He's very respected among uh, world leaders, whether uh, they like his political views and how he expresses himself or not. So uh, we have to keep our eyes on him and the new government in Israel as it unfolds.
1: I think for me, I can't help but mention President Zelensky of Ukraine. And the reason why is because of this fact, which is the number of foreign elected officials who've addressed a joint session of Congress is not as large as people may think. And those that have addressed two, it gets even smaller. And this fact, which I read about, um, I think I saw this in Politico, the only people who've exceeded Zelensky are Prime Minister Winston Churchill Bibi Netanyahu, who've addressed a joint session of Congress even more times than Zelensky, so great uh, connectivity to your point, Benjamin, on the person of the week is that he's so influential, Netanyahu, on global affairs that he—I got to mention him when it comes to Zelensky as well. But it's a big deal to address a joint session of Congress, and Zelensky's done it twice now. And in addition to that, he did it in the uniform of someone who's been fighting for his country, and he asked for more money and you know, like it or not, you know, where you stand on more foreign aid or not foreign aid or things like that, et cetera, just as a person of the week driving politics and driving um, uh, world affairs to do that, show up, meet with the president, have our president call you, Mr. President. It's a big win for him this week. And I think we've got to just mention him because of that, uh, both in terms of how it drives the conversation of what he's trying to do on global affairs, but also whenever people are mentioning you in the same company as like Churchill and, uh, and Netanyahu, you know,
0: that's a big deal. So that's my person of, of the week. He's certainly an impressive character for sure. I mean, for someone who basically people were writing off and everyone said, oh, Vladimir Putin is going to finish him off in the first uh, week or two of the war, they've been basically proven wrong. That's what happens when people try to make predictions, but uh, we're going to try to make a couple here also.
1: Yes, we are. Yes, we are. I like that segue. I like that. We, we might be wrong, but we're going to make them.
0: We might be wrong, but we're going to make them, and uh, we're going to be bold about it, too. I, I think that China is either going to go to war with Taiwan sometime this year or uh, level some sort of blockade in Taiwan. I think that they feel they have to make a move while Joe Biden's still president and before a Republican could potentially take over in 2024. China has a lot of reasons to want to take over Taiwan, besides the fact that they think it's theirs. In addition, uh, Taiwan has somewhere close to two-thirds of the uh, microchip capacity and uh, semiconductor capacity in the world. And China has never been successful to uh, develop their own industry in any great scale. If they take over Taiwan, they basically uh, control that very, very crucial segment of uh, the world economy. And uh, I think also with their sense that Biden is weak. Uh, You know, we were talking about Zelensky before Zelensky appeared before Congress and he he left with one Patriot missile battery. We know that, of course, the U.S. has given uh, several billion dollars in aid to uh, uh, the Ukraine, but if that's all they can get from a personal visit, if I were Xi Jinping, I would uh, be uh, sitting back and saying, you know something, I'm going to make my move sometime this year. That's my fearless uh, forecast.
1: My fearless forecast is uh, about a dark horse presidential candidate. I've been saying this privately and I'll say it publicly. I think when you listen to our interview today and Stu Lozer talked about the fact that people, um, you know, you have those who jump into the water and then you have those who sort of uh, wait a little bit and see how uh, warm the water is. I think that, yes, DeSantis is a front runner right now, arguably even more of a front runner than the former president. But I think another candidate is going to pop in there. And I think that there's an appetite for that because I could see a Trump-DeSantis fight uh, for some extended period of time. And so my dark horse presidential candidate is uh, the governor of South Dakota, Christy Noem, who I encourage people to pay attention to because I think she is building excitement on the right and the conservative base. And I believe also that she is pulling pages out of Trump's playbook, out of DeSantis' playbook. If you watch her on cable news, you see her on social media. Uh, she is someone who is building a track record that I think could put her in uh, serious uh, standing as a dark horse presidential candidate. So when I'm going fearless, I'm going big Benjamin, and I'm saying, uh, I think you come back to me in a couple months, six months, we'll be talking about her in the same way we talk about a
0: DeSantis or a, a Trump. That's where I'm going with my fearless forecast. As long as war with China doesn't uh, supersede that. But uh, we'll see. Like you said, we'll check back in a few months, and uh, we'll see how right or wrong we were. You are listening to Power Politics, unpacking the power players shaping our world, a Mishpacha podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating and share with your friends. Have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a guest to suggest? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on Twitter at the Mishpacha or at mishpacha.com forward slash powerpolitics. This episode was produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts with sound design by Cedar Media Studios. See you next week.